Hello and welcome to episode number 15 of Earth Repair Radio. They literally said, we need you to design like a force of nature. We can't respect insurance programs or property lines or political structures because climate change doesn't give a crap about any of that. We calculated um, by, by the year 2100, 13.6 feet um, is a very grounded, realistic view for what can happen to Vallejo and San Francisco. I mean, Los Angeles is gone. San Francisco is um, hugely impacted. The waterfronts become inaccessible, ruins. To me, the, the design, the ultimate design solution is we have to intervene in the political culture now. And we all have to get somehow get the reality of what this is going to do to the world of our ancestors and our children and somehow get our act together so we stop this process from happening. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Andrew Millison. And today we are talking to one of my favorite guys in the world, the visionary architect Mark Lakeman. Mark is the founder of Communitecture, an architecture firm in Portland, Oregon. He's also the founder of the City Repair Project, also in Portland, and the Planet Repair Institute. But today we're not talking to Mark about any of his big urban projects, we are talking to him about sea level rise and design responses to the projected sea level rise and a recent project he worked on in the San Francisco Bay Area. So uh, I want to give you a little warning here. If you have any kids that are listening, uh, Mark drops a handful of F-bombs, and so I want you to have a heads up on that. So um, anyways, without further ado, here is Mark Lakeman. Good afternoon, Mark. How are you doing? I'm really great, Andrew. How are you? I am doing really well here. Having a nice, warm February day in Oregon. Spring's coming early, probably for Portland as well. Very exciting. Yeah. So why don't you tell me about your recent work that has led you to finding out so much about design for sea level rise as someone who is living at 50 feet above sea level. So... What do you know about sea level rise, and how has that come about? Okay. Well, the launch pad, of course, is Portland that got me involved in this in this new new kind of realm of work, new, new scales. Um, I've been working in the Bay Area as one of 10 teams. Uh, there's this larger initiative that has arisen after um, Hurricane Sandy uh, devastated the eastern seaboard, and uh, it motivated... A greater awareness and uh, kind of an, an, an active mode um, to be more anticipatory, to be preemptive, uh, and help cities to prepare for the impacts uh, of climate change through design. So a call was put out. Um, this, this actually, I should say, this this initiative is funded massively by Rockefeller Foundation, and um, and there's a hundred cities involved. And then this whole other project, which is the Bay Area Initiative, which is considered the kind of crown jewel, or maybe um, it was literally said to us during the process of the last few months that this would be the strategic leverage point for trying to um, activate the world. And I'll say more about that as we go. But um, 10 teams were, were sort of teams from all over the world competed to be one of the 10 teams that would work in this process. 
And uh, I was invited to be a team that um, was particularly focused on using, uh, utilizing permaculture approaches um, in order to address the challenge of climate change in the Bay Area region. And key to this was to be able to use the crisis and the challenges um, as a means to accomplish long-standing goals and objectives that are kind of multidimensional related to social, ecological, economic, and political um, challenges that basically underpin um, our unsustainable culture. Rockefeller, I, I would say, was basically kicked in um, the nether regions by Sandy, and they got that climate change is real. So they're laying down really billions of dollars to support um, the transition of cities and to activate designers to then activate communities to do community-led initiatives, but visions on a big scale that are implemented um, locally and involve populations right where they live. So it's enlightened stuff. Um, but the way that we got involved is we're, we're you know we're used to doing stuff that people hasn't seen haven't seen before, and that's what Rockefeller wanted. They basically said at the start of the process, we need you. No, they literally said, we need you to design like a force of nature. We can't respect insurance programs or property lines or political structures because climate change doesn't give a crap about any of that. We need you to think like water and the force and power of the wind and you know everything else that you're going to be learning about through this process. We need to tell you what law, we need you to tell us what laws need to be changed. We need to grow food everywhere. We need to decentralize political power. We need to activate the population. The most vulnerable communities that have been located in the most toxic areas need to be the leaders. We need to start with them. We have to honor indigenous people. We have to figure out a way to retool everything. So they were like, hey, City Repair, you're used to doing that. And you know what they got, I think? The reason why we're involved, we've been involved, is that... Um, for us, what's big is basically participatory culture, and what's small is infrastructure. Infrastructure can kind of come and go and change, but what we're really trying to build is a permanent culture. So we're really interested in um, basically impacts that then can be transmitted socially, and we've been used to doing that. You know, like we're about to do 48 simultaneous projects during the village building convergence. So we're used to practicing like large scale activations, doing things that people have never even seen or heard of before, repurposing, you know, kind of residual space that nobody thought, you know, could ever serve a function um, or transforming streets into, you know, community spaces. So that qualified us to do, you know, the redesign of huge civic infrastructures on scales um, even greater than we've ever done before. Because frankly, um, you know, people who are used to being paid to design big buildings or big water infrastructures or big civil engineering projects haven't worked with communities. So they needed community-led initiatives um, for one thing so that they could activate a wider spectrum of capital and then there would be greater political support going into the future because everybody in the region would be owning um, whatever it was that we created as a response. Mm. So that's um, that's kind of how we got involved and uh, – and I should just pause there because I could go on forever about yeah. how this all began. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the threat that's posed by sea level rise. 
what is the magnitude of damage that's being projected here? I mean, what are the coasts of the world look like by the end of this century? Yeah, the magnitude. Okay, well, so, you know, the Bay Area is considered a leverage point because basically um, there's a very high level of agreement that it's real. They've been watching the water rise since the onset of the Industrial Revolution. So there's a baseline of agreement that it's real, and that's why Rockefeller and the overall organizers consider this a propitious, um, you know, population to work with. Um, also that there are so many different examples of uh, various landscapes that can apply to other places in the world that everything we create, there'd be a prototype. But as we're touring around for from um, September into November, meeting political leaders, community leaders, indigenous leaders, uh, there was no level of agreement about the scale of the risk. But we were prepared at the very start by this fellow named Klaus Jacobs, who's considered one of the leading climate scientists in the world. And he said, okay, let's get real about this. You need to hear from, you need to hear from the horse's mouth, which is basically him representing um, the consensus of, of scientists around the world, that the problem uh, will not stop with the levels that people are preparing for. He said um, that we're looking at at least 75 to 125 feet as a maximum for the world to be inundated. Um, and he also noted that projections of that go uh, of that scale go as high as 200 feet Whoa. around the world. Wow! So the, the level of risk um, is extraordinary and Nobody knows how fast it's happening, but we do know this. As of about 2010, the water around the world was rising at a sixteenth of an inch a year. As of 2010, it has doubled to an eighth of an inch a year. Wait, you said 2010 the first time? Did you mean? Yeah. Before 2010, for oh, okay. the last three on average, we yeah. were seeing water rise at a rate of about a sixteenth of an inch. Now it's at a rate of an eighth of an inch, and that only happened within the last decade. So a doubling in the last decade. I mean, how many how many doublings are we going to see? There's obviously um, a kind of a critical mass effect or a tipping point where um, the system starts to behave in ways that can't be anticipated. We're probably past that. I think that the year that where that was ha going to happen was already projected to be about 2003, I think. Mm. So nobody knows the scale, but my sense of it from all of the speaking and workshops that we attended um, is that around 10 feet in increase, the climate will be destabilized to the extent that no one will be able to grow things reliably. Like we won't have seasonal cycles like we have now. They will be disrupted. As we already know, as we already know the jet stream is fluctuating wildly, you know, causing regions to go suddenly from very, very hot to very, very cold because the jet stream is like, is no longer like a simple sine curve. It's, 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 it's diving wildly northern and southern um, in, in erratic ways that we can't predict. So our, our weather patterns will suddenly change and we'll get a freeze when we thought we were about to harvest kind of effect. So before, before we even get near 75 feet, down around 10 feet, the effects of climate change upon lots of things. Obviously, you know, if you're affecting food, you're going to affect economy and you're going to affect political instability. And at a certain point, it's no longer ma a manageable condition. 
Now, when you're talking about 75 feet, I mean, are you talking about like the entire uh, Antarctic and Arctic ice caps basically melting into the ocean? I mean, is that the scenario that would raise the sea level to that point? I mean, what does that look like? Because that seems... I mean, that's pretty darn extreme, and I'm not sure what the time frame is, and of course, probably no one, nobody really knows. Um, do you know anything about that, where, where that number that's, is coming from? That's coming from the melting of glaciers and ice caps, yeah, from the entire Arctic and Antarctic, and then um, a diminishing of the freezing, the seasonal freezing effect that creates ice fields. Hmm. So, yeah, it's basically a global layer that increases um, by tens of feet. Now, did you read the book, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, New York 2140? Have you seen that? Are you familiar with that? I've gone through it. Okay, it's got this beautiful picture on the cover. I mean, a beautiful pic- it's a beautiful picture, but it's New York in 2140 flooded yeah. with all the skyscrapers. Um, but he actually introduced a concept I'd never thought of before, which was the fact that if you had, say, one of the big ice shelves in Antarctic actually crack off and very rapidly enter the ocean, you wouldn't have this gradual rising of sea level. You actually could have a displacement effect where you had a really a really rapid rise in sea level um, because large ice shelves were basically splashing into the ocean. So I don't know if, if that's fictional or if that was something that you heard about in some of your studies and conversations. Yeah, we heard all kinds of different scenarios, all of which are are not just likely, but um, pretty guaranteed that it's, it's all going to happen. There won't be one particular pattern. So, yeah, you were asking, you know, your question earlier was about um, how this will affect our coastlines, how, how far inland it will go. I mean, you start off by mentioning that Portland was at about 50-ish feet. I'm sitting at about 55 feet right now. Um, yeah, we'll be underwater. This will all be underwater. Uh, you know, one thing that was most troubling during the process of the of those two months I mentioned was that um, as we were touring around and, and visiting all of these people, and, and you know, we were down in Silicon Valley, and there was a there was a guy who was telling us about their preparations. He said, yeah, we're going to put in a three-foot levee. We're changing our building codes to put people new, new buildings up on three-foot platforms. And I kept asking what were just really simple questions, like, all right, so, you know, we've got this Einstein of climate science here on the bus. He's telling us this could go as high as, you know, minimally 75 feet. What's your plan beyond three feet? <laughs> I was like, I know that you're not supposed to talk about this politically, uh, you know, in the news, I su- I know we're all supposed to be scared so much that we can't even look each other in the eyes. But what about when you're having beer with your friends? Do you ever talk about what's next? And he's like, he had just gotten done saying we're holding the line. Nothing's going to take down Silicon Valley. And I was like, yeah, but what's beyond three feet? Do you have a plan for political transformation? Because the only thing that's going to keep it going beyond three feet is an immediate societal wide initiative to somehow reduce our, our impact and localize our economies. And, you know, I, I said this in a really concise way. <laughs> and he's like, no, we're not talking about it. I mean, up in Napa Valley, at Napa Valley, where people are like, oh, no, we're, we're already being flooded and Highway 37 is being flooded. Like, what are we going to do? So I was like, do you guys, when you were having beer, do you ever talk about changing the political landscape somehow? Because this isn't stopping 
there's no point where it, it stops and you still have a, a landscape. Yeah. Nobody's talking. So here we are being funded, you know, this millions, millions of dollars, like funding stream going in to support the transition of the Bay Area. And even there, all they're doing locally is talking about two feet, three feet, even even Alameda, which is basically about to be inundated yeah. right now. They're like, yeah, we're going to we're going to put things on a two foot platform. Like even they don't have a clue right. about the, the 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 potential magnitude of the challenge or the political reality that's driving this. Right. Well, it seems like a time frame issue, and it seems like the people that are decision makers are looking fairly short term. Um, but in the short term, we still have storm surge, and so I don't know right. if storm surge is something you discuss. I mean, that's really when we look at Hurricane Sandy, when we look at uh, some of the big uh, storms that hit the Gulf this last summer, and we have that map of storm surge going up. It was you know the Houston Bay and all this stuff. Um, what is what is the discussion around storm surge? Because that seems like a more immediate issue. Yeah, yeah, it's really important. Well, when you're you know when you're talking about um, people living on land, urban populations anywhere near the edge, especially, you have to be thinking about the combined crisis that um, that events, you know, converging uh, converging kind of combined issues present. Sandy was a case where you had, you know, not just storm and storm surge. And waters that were already rising, but you also had the moon directly overhead, the full moon hmm. directly overhead, which was pulling the water up, actually creating more, 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 um, you know, surges of a whole different magnitude. So in our work in, you know, our work in the Bay Area, we weren't just doing research. We had to do design, um, really thorough design, um, sort of diagram sketches before engaging the community. And we worked on the majority of San Francisco, a great deal of Vallejo, and then also uh, Mare Island, which is a giant military facility in the um, northern part of the bay, four million square foot facility, as well as remnant uh, naval architecture. We had to look at all of that and calculate all these combined factors and then design um, strategies that would enable us to um, protect the infrastructure and the communities in case everything happened at once. So, you know, you're, you're, you're projecting in the Bay Area a sea level rise of as much as nine feet in the coming century. And then you have to be looking at the fact that 100-year um, floods are happening more frequently and with a 30% increase in the volume of water. Well, you're being hit. You're, you're, you've got water coming at you from the ocean rising, and then you have an increased volume of water coming more frequently from the land. You have, you know, urban surfaces and, and infrastructure that isn't designed to um, spread and soak this water. Um, it's really designed to sort of shed it into into that waterway. Well, you know, all of that combines to completely flood your infrastructure, which tends to be down at your water, um, at your water's edge. And, of course, your municipal wastewater treatment facilities are always down at the water's edge to capture everything in a watershed and then discharge it into the local, the local um, you know, stream or river. So, you know, you, you start to factor in things like, oh, yeah, well, what if you have a king tide at the same time as you have 
an inundation flood and sea level rise happening? And what if you also have a full moon overhead? What what can all that add up to? Um, so we we calculated um, by by the year 2100, and I think this you know we were using the precautionary principle: every worst case scenario, stack it up, and then try to protect against that with systems that can actually be augmented in the moment if necessary. And we calculated uh, 13.6 feet um, is a very grounded, realistic view for what can happen mm-hmm. to Vallejo and San Francisco. Wow. But water does not always do what you think, um, especially in a system like the Bay Area where you have water coming in through rivers in certain parts of the bay. And then you have water from the ocean coming in and out um, from the aperture at the at the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, which creates strange dynamics where the water is actually always at a different height around the bay. And the southern, the southern you know, section of San Francisco Bay is very, very different than San Pablo Bay at the northern edge. So you know, when, you're, when you're thinking about all these combined factors, you also have the influence of waterways and, and the influx and, and outflux of water systems that are part of the overall region. So um, this is, this is a, lo- a lot to take into consideration. It's really interesting. Um, I once sat on an airplane next to a uh, guy who had been through uh, a massive nine-point-something earthquake in in Alaska as a child, and he became an earthquake building inspector. That was his job. And we were talking wow. about what what an earthquake would look like in this region. And his big thing was, oh, the thing you really need to worry about is that you have an earthquake happen during wintertime when you have high water you have a tsunami it's not like a tsunami is going to come all the way up to portland you know through the columbia river but what a tsunami can do a massive earthquake from the cascadia subduction zone is actually stop the water from in, in a couple of pulses from draining out to the sea so it's like the columbia the willamette basically just stop flowing out and he basically said and the willamette valley fills up like a bathtub and so that's somewhat of the type of situation that you're saying is when you have this confluence of factors there. Um, so 13.6 feet, was you, that, was, that was the design parameter that you guys came up with for the Bay Area, basically. Yeah, that was not calculating the potential effects of a moon okay. um, or head. Yeah, but let's, let's just dwell on the Willamette Valley for a second. Um, you know, say you have a huge earthquake – and it does happen uh, at a time when, you know, you have an influx of water coming in from the ocean. Uh, I mean, it, it, it causes that to happen. And somehow you might have um, a dam break upstream in the Willamette or the Columbia River. Probably not the Columbia, but at least the Willamette is possible. Yeah. Like, I, I, you know, I look at Detroit yeah. Dam and I'm just kind of wondering about that all the time in a seismic event. Yeah. Um, all of that riprap acting like ball bearings with enough force. So, so that comes downstream as you have water backing up because of um, of a tsunami. This is stuff that is real risk. It's 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 real risk, and and, and people don't take it seriously um, until until something happens. But civil engineers, you know, are trained in the history and science of this, and they know that it, it's it's not um, a pipe dream. It's what it's what they actually have to anticipate, even if other people aren't paying attention, because it happens. Yeah. So given that you you sort of came up with some sort of rough 
parameter for what you're going to design for. I mean, it's hard to even say 13 point, you know, 13.6 feet still that's, you know, end of the century. And like you said, Hey, it's not like, like, you know, we have enough warming programmed into the system here that it's not like sea level rise would necessarily stop at that point. However, given, you know, say you're going to pick a number for your design project because you need to pick a number. What type of strategies are you, would you consider to employ to actually respond to that in a constructive way, that type of sea level rise? Yeah. Boy, we looked at so many different things. I, I, I want to say a simple answer to an earlier question in order to get into this um, response. You asked, like, what, how will our coastlines be affected? And, you know, we're looking at just every perimeter population being flooded. I mean, Los Angeles is gone. San Francisco is um, hugely impacted. The waterfronts become inaccessible, ruins, places like, you know, Portland, Vancouver, BC, um, even Seattle to a great extent is is impacted. And when we're talking about the largest scale of the, of the challenge, um, you know, it's, it's going to affect all cities everywhere I mean, yeah. because climate will be. Huh? Yeah. I just want to say I visited Mumbai, um, last month and Mumbai actually has, well, it's a city of 22 and a half million people. It has the, it's the largest concentration of people on the planet in that city that are, uh, that would be affected by sea level rise. So that actually dwarfs the um, density and populations even of the U.S. West Coast cities that you're mentioning here. Okay, and a lot of um, a lot of the cities, when we're talking about this, you know, you asked about strategies just now. A lot of city cities have um, extremely complicated circumstances. Like no landscape is the same. the The Bay Area is a great case study for looking about at how much diversity, ge- geographic diversity can be happening um, in one in one region you've got you've got areas um, where the, the the shore just drops off into depth how do you treat that circumstance when you don't even have a water's edge for putting in something like a levee and then you have um, vast swaths around the San Francisco Bay where you you know have marshes that have been turned into um, housing developments or places like Silicon Valley industrial zones um, you know, you could just say, well, let's just pull back and put in a marsh. Um, but you're looking at a giant, you know, a vast, vast brownfield of toxicity into the future, um, leaching into the water system if you don't keep the water from getting into it, which is already happening because as water's rising, there's also rising the water table. Um, at the southern end of the San Francisco Bay, uh, um, places like Alviso, very challenged community, very diverse, uh, you know, economically challenged, racially diverse population that is used to being basically um, disrespected through its whole history has already subsided by 15 feet. Wow. So they're already 15 feet below the level of the water. And the only thing that's stopping them is an earthen dam. So your circumstances are very diverse. Okay, so here's the great challenge. Here's the main design challenge, not even talking about the fact that an earthquake could end up happening at the same time as freaking flooding and, you know, and all these other factors. But your main challenge is, you know, how do you stop water that's rising at the edge of your, of your geography um, at the same time as you're, you're, you're potentially creating 
um, a ponding effect as water is rushing at you from the, the, the larger landscape and coming down to the water's edge. The, the, the challenge, I mean, everybody needs to t talk, like a half an hour of every American hearing this is going to freak them out enough to actually realize they got to fucking do something. And let me just start off this freak out. I hope whoever's listening to this gets freaked out. Here's your freak out. Listen to this. I'm quoting the San Le chief engineer, chief municipal wastewater treatment engineer of San Leandro. He said, guess what? As soon as our bacterial culture that handles millions of gallons a day is killed by inundation, we have no idea how long it will take to regenerate that bacteria because it took us years to grow it to create a voracious, manageable bacteria that can handle that much effluent in one day and then release it clean enough to go into the bay. If we kill that bacteria and, and the whole system backs up, not only is our wastewater treatment facility fucked, you're all fucked. <laughs> he said that? Yeah, he's, he said that exactly, and I ended up quoting it over and over again in public dialogues with 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 officials and engineers and and community participants. Like this is what he said, and this is true. You know what this? You know what? The light bulb went off in my head. This means every wastewater treatment facility engineer in the entire country, around the, at least around the perimeter, knows that climate change is real because they're what they're all located at the water's edge, and they're all watching the water rise. Whether it's in Louisiana, where they're losing a football field of land a day, you know, or in, in Massachusetts, they know that it's real because they're watching it inch closer and closer to their systems that are all located in the most vulnerable places. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to do? You, you, you try to protect against rising water that's only going to continue to rise, and then you're going to end up containing your water as it's rushing down at your, you know, your freeways that are located near the water and your, your, your transit systems, you know, and then that's where your urban centers are, usually down close to the water, because that's where, you know, there's so many things that, that are related to commerce and industry that need to be at the water's edge. So you're going to end up trapping the water and flooding your, your, your urban context and, you know, annihilating a lot of communities that are there and then um, releasing toxicity out of the water in all of these kind of places that, um, you know, it's you've been spilling or storing um, toxic waste or, you know, what, what have you for, for decades. So there's your challenge. How do you, how do you manage all of that? That's all just a bit overwhelming, really. Yeah. It seems as if, um, there's very little you can do, but here, here's, 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 here's your design solution. Um, at, at least the, what we propose for San Francisco. So there's all kinds of things that we've already been undertaking as a permaculture community. Um, we believe strongly in decentralized redundant systems we believe in intervening locally, and there's a lot of reasons to do that. The systems are low-tech, they can be passive, and they can be of a scale that can be maintained and managed without um, specific professional training or even funding. Things like street swales can easily be managed where you're dealing with you know, the runoff um, that's basically headed toward your wastewater treatment plant um, down the street. That can all be diverted along the edge of the street because they're all crowned to send water to the edge so we can intercept that and you know in a place like california or, or dubai or wherever where you you've got a serious water challenge anyway um part of what we were looking at in in san francisco was to convert the wastewater system itself from a, a way of getting rid of water to a way of catching water 
mm. and, and redirecting the water out to places where it can basically go through biological systems and then be converted into water that's usable. There you go. So we do it, first of all, at the homestead scale, and we actually, we freaking nailed it. Like, we calculated how much water's coming down on um, Islay's Creek, which is the watershed that is the, the majority of the geography of San Francisco. Figured out how much water's coming down, how much water each individual house can, can capture, and then, and, then, and then, you know, basically filter, and then use, and then reuse, and freaking reuse and reuse, and then sink into the ground. So... You know, basically a strategy where no water leaves any private or publicly held land. Mm. And then in the um, common systems of the street infrastructure, all of these systems that can intervene. So, of course, we're talking about things that we already know how to do. Right. Water catchment strategies, remediation strategies, um, you know, simple things like mulching the landscape and making the landscape more into a living sponge so it respirates and accepts water. You know, all that's wonderful. Green roofs, which will do their share. Um, you know, treating fundamentally changing our mentality to treat this, to treat water as a resource rather than as a as a as a pollutant from the start. Um, you know, permeable surfaces everywhere, and basically trying to keep the water from leaving the landscape to become a problem down at the water's edge to begin with. Yeah. So we go upstream with the with the design approach mm. and decentralize it. So we actually, you know, as permaculturists, we're like, hey. Let's not just talk about water. Let's talk about social isolation. Let's talk about the fact that the, the region is experiencing extended droughts. Let's stack all these dysfunctions and then figure out how we can relate them and create solutions to everything. So, you know, that's how we were thinking. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's, one, that's one aspect. But when, you know, when you're dealing with trying to stop water from coming in, there's a few tools that you have. For one thing, you want to restore marshes if you can. Um, you know, to attenuate waves and to slow down the impact of the water coming at you during storm surges. So that's a thing that you need to do. But one of our teams, one of the 10 teams calculated that there is no fucking way to keep up with, with the rising rate of water. That we are, we, they literally figured this out in front of everyone. They, they presented their case to the world, you know, on the internet. They said there is no way, there's not enough silt. We can maybe link to that in the show notes. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, they're called um, Public Sediment. That's the name of the team. So they established that there's no freaking way to keep the marshes of the Bay Area alive. It's, it is impossible mm-hmm. to find enough silt. And then the silt that's already in the bottom of the bay because of um, the strip mining of the mountains around the bay where they just blasted the landscape with hoses in order to expose <coughs> and use mercury in order to expose gold wow. that all of the silt of the bay is 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 laced with mercury tailings oh, tracings everywhere huh. so you can't it's not like you can just dredge the bay <clears throat> to then create more volume for water but then also to build up your um, your marsh with sediment it can't work that way so the strategy is that we still need marshes for all the biodiversity, otherwise we'll lose it, and it has to creep up the land as the water inundates the world. So you need marshes to attenuate waves. You need marshes for a lot of um, sequestration roles and uh, habitat functions, all of which is really important for humanity as well. Um, but you, we're not going to stop the water. To, to me, the, the design, the ultimate design solution 
is we have to intervene in the political culture now. And we all have to get somehow get the reality of what this is going to do to the world of our ancestors and our children and somehow get our act together so we stop this process from happening. I wish that, you know, uh, I wish that some of the, the climate superheroes of the world could have been involved in this, um, you know, that uh, speak so powerfully about um, the, the, you know, the possibility to intervene in the crisis and actually stop it and arrest it because we didn't have those kinds of voices uh, involved. But that to me is the most important thing we can do because there's not going to be an earthen levy or a rock levy or a concrete wall that can stop this from going as high as it, as it potentially will. Yeah. Now, um, places like uh, the Netherlands have certainly uh, done some pretty massive infrastructure as far as levees and earthen walls and gates, you know, lock gates to, to close where rivers are coming out when you have uh, tidal surges and storm surges. Um, and you're actually presenting this really other, this other picture um, of a massive widespread network of small scale, um, really retrofittable design elements like in, you know, to solve the problem of wastewater going into the sea, how the wastewater treatment plants are located at the sea. You're talking about, let's just reduce the amount of wastewater going into these systems and let's use that quote unquote wastewater as the irrigation water that we're lacking in California because of the drought. So, um, you know, that's really, that's really turning it around. Do you also see a place for large scale infrastructural elements like what we see over um, in Holland. Yeah. Okay. Let me tell you what they said, because uh, there were teams, there were several teams that were like, oh my God, we need Dutch people on our team. I mean, you know, in in a process like this, if you have a person from Holland uh, on your team, everyone thinks you're really cool. And it's true. (laughs) They could say things that were um, illuminating and utterly entertaining. Like the Dutch... One 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 team had this Dutch engineer. He said, "Okay, here's what it was like for us." And and I'm telling you this as a person who believes that you can go into the ocean and reclaim land. People are like, "What? You Dutch? You're crazy! You can't go into the ocean. That 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 land is all like it's all salty. You know, and 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 how are you going to stop the water from coming under your levee and flooding in the, your land? What? How could you possibly?" So the Dutch engineer says. The choice for us was to either go into the ocean or go or become German. <laughs> right. He's like, we weren't going to freaking become German. So we had to go into the ocean, which was easier, <laughs> you know, and I don't mean to insult. Yeah. I've got I've got German ancestry, too. But they were saying we're culturally distinct. And it was either, you know, end up end up and to end up coming closer to a culture that we really want to keep some distance from. And actually end up merging with them and having more to do with them. Or we go out into the ocean and reclaim land so that we can remain culturally distinct. So these issues are complicated. They involve social, political, economic, you know, agricultural issues. And um, sometimes the pressure is evolutionary and it forces an engineered solution. So the Dutch are sitting there through this whole process just going like, hey, you guys are freaking out for nothing. You know, we can totally deal with this. But they were also saying, you know... There's only so much that you can deal with. 
before it becomes impossible. Because even in Holland, they have, you know, they have breaches um, occasionally too, and, and really intense storm events. So um, do you see, were there any specific recommendations for like large scale infrastructure, like, you know, close off the bay with a giant levee or, I mean, you know, what are some of the ideas for really centralized big design features? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's lots. Um, First of all, you know, a levee occurs to almost everyone. Uh, and, of course, you can't just put up a wall. It has to be a chambered system. So if the wall gets breached anywhere, you're able to contain that breach. So you have, you know, you have a, a wall that is parallel to the shore, and then it has perpendicular walls that go up into the landscape so that you create compartments, basically C-shaped compartments all the way along. Um, so that's that's one really important strategy. But... What, what we were being taught how to do was to recognize that the creation of this infrastructure uh, offers us the opportunity to also revolutionize the way that we inhabit the water's edge so that we're not just, you know, kind of going into a scarcity mode, um, but that it's, it, that it's a better thing to create a way to come to the edge, to bring people to that edge. So if you're putting in a levee, it also becomes a trail system yeah. or the edge of the levee becomes a more designed ecology. Like, for instance, there are systems that that um, we were we were witnessing other teams create that um, catch all this water during high tide and then slowly. You know, it's like these little s- sort of spiral chambers, hmm. each one of one of which ha- harbors a little ecology, a little sort of mariculture. Yeah, basically artificial tide pools yeah. stacked on each other in this yeah. kind of system that is actually structural. And it releases the water slowly and um, creates an ecologically beneficial effect. So, you know, whether we were – I mean, we saw lots of different designs from from the Sandy phase of this a couple of years ago um, where people would say, all right, let's create a levee, but let's also create an amphitheater on the other side. Hmm. Or since we're having to open up some space in this urban edge to put in a levee – um, let's put in a trail system and also a park and then also some agricultural amenities as well or some habitat. So the, the main principle being use the challenge um, in order to enact some sort of beneficial solution. Um, so obviously very permaculture, permacultural um, kind of point of view about that. Uh, also, the, the fact that that money is coming to the region becomes a catalyst for to to basically partner um, with other kinds of initiatives that can bring funding into the mix so that you have this kind of gigantic master-planned um, approach that changes a lot all at once. Um, and then we were being coached you know, to do this deep dive with community so that everything would be community-led and you would use every design engagement process as a means of, of um, cultivating local leadership. Um, you know, and... God, there were so many different wonderful advisors. It was like, you know, talking to this Norse council of the Norns. I mean, people had these scholars had so much wisdom that were bringing to us, uh, bringing to the process, coaching us on how to find the leverage point, community by community, that would enable us to be generative and then also engage like local youth, for instance, to train them up um, to go on to then develop other systems to support other communities that had to do with engendering resilience. 
So it was very permacultural in the overall um, approach to the project. Hmm. Very exciting. Yeah, you know, it was interesting because I, I had before, mm-hmm. again, I mean, I want to kind of coming back to this Kim Stanley Robinson book, uh, The New York 2140. Um, before I read that story and that vision of an actually thriving Manhattan Island that lower Manhattan is kind of like Venice, you know, and they end up, um, they end up kind of towards the end of the story, building these floating rafts in order to expand the city. Because the fact is, is, is that civilization doesn't collapse and money and investment is still pouring into places like New York City in this particular scenario. And so they're like, how do we actually expand the city into the water and create these floating rafts of blocks and having the technology to do that and everything? Um, so, you know, what you're, you're, you're starting to present a, a little bit of a, a sort of a thriving vision there. And I'm curious, like, do, do you have hope or where is the hope in this whole process? Because when we start to talk about you know, 75 feet of sea level rise or even, you know, 13, 14 feet of sea level rise. And we start to look at the mass and we start to look at the numbers of humans that are actually living within those proximities to sea level. Um, there is definitely like a, a feeling of, of hopelessness at, at the sheer scale of this. Now, I know you talked about political solutions, but, you know, where do you find hope and vision in this this big picture? Wow. That's such a great question. Okay. Well, um, so I want to come, I want to touch on something you said just before that question. Uh, so it seems like it's exciting to go out into the water and create floating landscapes. But that reminds me that, um, you know, the idea that we build ourselves out of this conundrum that we're in, um, is I don't think it's actually a, a realistic solution. Um, I think that there's things that we can do as we reorient our economic construct to focus more on real need that, and, 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 and an economy that's re- driven by real value, a search for real value, rather than just producing um, stuff that ends up becoming waste. So I think protecting our urban infrastructure and our various cultural investments is extremely important and it may end up happening that we, I mean, certainly I'm all about floating gardens. I, I wave attenuating carbon sequestering, um, floating systems that move up and down with tides. Absolutely fucking awesome. We need to do it. But, um, you know, in our process down there, we saw some, some proposals that had to do with creating basically mid rise structures floating on, on, on systems. Now this was to say, Oh, here in the, in the low income community of Alviso, this is what we can do for you to create multi-level houseboats. No, you know, what's going to happen there is that every single person who lives there will be displaced and they will not get to live in that place. They will be thrown out and forced inland to some other place in some isolationist landscape while they'll continue to have to work as the as the bottom level working class, while other people get to enjoy the houseboats, and and besides all that, it's it's not going to be designed in an ecologically sustainable way. I used to live on a houseboat for most of my life. I can tell you, it is um, hugely intensive. For one thing, you have to pump everything uphill, all of your effluent uphill, so there's no gravity fed systems um, involved in it. Yeah, so. <laughs> 
Yeah. I, your question was, what are we going to do? Well, my question was, where do you find hope in yeah. in this whole equation here? Okay, so I may, I can, I'm loaded. For one thing, I get up every morning and I'm so freaking excited to still be here. Um, this is my baseline, seriously. Like, I am absolutely fascinated by even the mundane um, daily experience of this reality. Um, I get up, I have a little baby, she blows me away every day. I can't believe what I'm witnessing, the, the flowering of a human being. Um, I, I walk around right now and I'm seeing things starting to blossom and you know, some insects are starting to, to hatch. Uh, so I'm, I'm, this, is, this is where I find my hope. I'm charged up by being present enough in my reality to be witnessing it. I'm pra- practicing baseline permaculture there, you know, to be basically observing and interacting with my own environment to the extent that I get to be blown away. I get to be filled up with appreciation. And please don't like under, uh, when I'm saying this, you know, please, anybody listening to this, please don't underestimate how powerful this is because this is where you pull the lid off of your creative like inspiration and capacity. When you get to be filled with appreciation and you look around even at your problems, you're like, oh, my freaking problems are miracles. I am so lucky to have these problems. Everything's perfectly in place right now for us to transform the world. You know, that's a creative place to be coming from. And if if your essential context of seeing is not propitious, then um, you're going to you're going to you'll be more challenged than you need to be. So where I get hope is from my my baseline of seeing um, how miraculous the reality is. We're still the only life like field of, you know, kind of biosphere that we know of. I'm blown away by that. We're still rotating around. I'm seeing all the abundance. Besides the, pl- the, the problems, you got to have everything in context. We're still rotating and tilting consistently. Um, the pressures, the atmospheres are still there to hold our bodies together. There's still enough oxygen being produced by ecosystems to fill our lungs every day as a gift. So here's what I do that gives me, give me, gives me power. I was once coached by this guy, Elk River, to... Um, as he said, work with the economy of the universe, and then everything will tend to have a, a continuity and a rebalancing effect. So obviously, you know, like permaculturists love everything to be gravity-fed. You're working with the force, you know. You're working with gravity. You're working with the force of nature. You know, you're capturing sunlight. You're capturing water and, and letting it flow through biological systems so that all of these allies, these life forces, help you to clean water. Um, I'm blown away by all that, and all that charges me up to realize that there's a solution to every problem. I think, um, so specifically about your question, these crises are presenting us an opportunity to get our act together like nothing else has. It's happening at a time when we're more of a global society that we ha- than we have ever been. Our urban centers, not just in North America, all over the world, are more diverse. We know more about each other than we ever have. I think in some ways this idiotic Trump administration is offering us the perfect moment to look at ourselves in the mirror and, you know, wit- witness, revel in our hypocrisy and our um, paradox and be insulted just enough to finally fucking do something about the situation um, on, a, on a collaborative scale that we've never seen before. So I think the crisis gives me hope, actually. And that's permaculture. Take the freaking problem and turn it into a solution. That's what you do every single time. That's an alchemist. People who like to watch freaking Harry Potter, um, who are into the Druids or 
like those guys were, you know, a wizard is an alchemist, a person who takes a circumstance that might cow others and walks right into it, you know, and converts it into an opportunity every single time. So I think, you know, I personally am happy that I was born into this time because like this is freaking my time. That's how I feel about it. You know, mm-hmm. it's your time too. It's everybody's time. But I, I take it personally. This is my time, my place, my family, my friends, my world, my people, my species, my bio freaking sphere. You know, and we're all threatened. You know, I, I noticed that we all love these movies. Like, it comes down to the last double oh seventh of a second to save the planet. And we're all like, <laughs> will he make it? Like, we're all in that movie now. We all get to be that character in our own little realm because I can't fix your realm and you can't fix mine. So we got to be the hero of our own freaking story where we are. That's what gets me going and excited. The scope of the challenge is greater than it has ever been before. And here we are with more friends in the world than we could possibly ever even know. We have everyone and everyone we need, everything we need, and every crisis we could have ever asked for that we ever could have created is all coming at us at once. So it's the greatest opportunity for transformation that we've ever um, seen. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That is exciting. Now, um, now what about our, our listener here who's sitting there in their nice little house, uh, you know, two, three feet above sea level on the coast, right? What, what, what kind of advice can you give them, uh, what what nugget can you tell them to give them a little bit of hope or at least some advice on how to um, endure the coming uh, sea level rise and climate change? Yeah, I think um, this is a perfect opportunity for people living on the edge to build community and to have a sense um, of a larger self with other people that you've never experienced before. Um there are things that, I mean, people, whether it's through uh, having people being uh, existentially unsettled or just simply getting into action and experiencing the benefits of becoming more motivated, everyone's leadership capacity is going to start to come forward. And that's what these challenges present. They present opportunities for personal growth, um, for, you know, technical reskilling. I think that we can save all this land um, and at the same time, we can also restore ecologies that we've badly damaged. I think even places like Elviso that are 15 feet presently below the water can also somehow hold the line and keep the places where they have um, grown up. These children have grown up. Um, they can keep those places safe and secure. But it means that we have to build community and we have to take back the story from politicians who are, and, 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 you know, the, the, the privileged class that is losing its mind, mm. we all get to be heroes. Yeah. You know, I just had a conversation over breakfast about how, you know, even the most wealthy and privileged, especially the most wealthy and privileged are depending on the rest of us to save them because they've obviously lost touch with reality and they're miserable. So even they are relying on the rest of us to, to oppose them and defy them, overthrow them. You know, and make make them a sandwich and send them off to have a picnic or something so that they can start getting in touch with their their senses. I think that there's this opportunity. You know, you want to save your oceanfront landscape. Um, at the same time, there's all of these other things that that need to happen that can happen through engaging that challenge. 
Um, you know, frankly, though, if people want to think that they're just going to put riprap up and then save their 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 cliff front dwelling without building community and continuing to treat the world as it is as if it isn't sacred and it's only a commodity, you're mistaken. The act of engaging this in a holistic way is going to revolutionize your understanding of the world and your relationship to other people, no matter what. And that's all good. That's all that's all meaningful. And if we end up going down because of some stupid move by a, a craven leader, um, at least our lives will be more meaningful by the time that happens. Um, and I don't mean to be fatalistic about it. I'm excited about every aspect of this challenge. Hmm. Nice. As as always, you got you, you kind of leave me speechless a lot when I when you start to kind of go into your uh, your like wider inspirational vision. You know, I I bring my classes to see you once a year or so, and I always tend to I always tend to end the talks sort of like kind of just speechless and really not knowing what to say because I because I, I have this feeling like I get this feeling welling up inside me of like I'm ready to run outside and do something you know so um thanks next for... time you bring your students let's all uh let's all let's all go out and do uh, some kind of let's set aside an hour to go out and do something impactful yeah definitely go run out and do something well um this has been incredibly informative um how how can people listening find out more about you more about your work um any other resources you want to point us to that you talked about in the last hour Okay, well, since we're talking about climate change, you could go uh, to the project that I've been discussing today with you um, called uh, Resilient by Design, the Bay Area Challenge. Um, You can just Google that online to go there. Uh, You can learn more about what we specifically have contributed to that by going to communitecture.net, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-E-C-T-U-R-E.net. You can go to cityrepair.org, and then you can also go to planetrepair.org and um, learn about our urban permaculture uh, courses and uh, other initiatives that have to do with revillaging. Nice. Awesome. Well, I'm glad that you are on the task, Mark. Got special agent Mark figuring out the the sea level rise issue here, and um, you've really uh, really enlightened me quite a bit. Um, you know, on, of, of course, like I said, always on the inspirational level, but also on the technical level as well. So thanks for laying out some of these different patterns and, you know, what the overall kind of physical conditions and some of the good physical responses we could have to the situation. So that's great. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. And I really, um, as always appreciate the connection and your sharing of your wisdom. So thanks. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to spend time with you anytime. Looking forward to seeing you soon. All right. Looking forward to seeing you again soon. All right. Take care. Ciao. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.